For those of you who know me, you know that uh, one of the one of the indicators of my life is that I am not opposed to finding good deal and a good bargain, whether it's being Kijiji or Facebook Marketplace or a secondhand store, a pawn shop or a flea market. I welcome and love them all and I love just hunting for a good deal. I was reading lately about a story about a woman from uh, Shenandoah Valley, Virginia. I have no idea where that is outside of it's in Virginia. This woman went to a flea market and she saw a box of trinkets that was selling for $6.90. Now, why $6.90? Because it's less than $7 and it really makes you feel like it's a bargain. Now, inside the box, there was a, a leather, brown leather Paul Bunyan doll uh, that the lady thought was quite cute and she figured she could resell this maybe for a tiny profit. Also in the box, there was a plastic cow that she thought was really cute and could be a decoration for her living room. Finally, there was a, a painting. Now, she didn't particularly like the painting, but she thought that she might be able to use the ornate gold frame to house a picture later on down the road. So she paid her $7. I don't know if she got the 10 cents back or not, but she paid her $7 and took the box home. She sold the brown leather doll and dusted off the pl plastic cow and pr proudly displayed it in her home. Then she repurposed the ornate gold frame and stored the actual painting up in her attic. Now, sometime later, after decluttering her house, the woman's mother persuaded her to book an evaluation appointment for the painting at an auction house. She was very fortunate that her mother encouraged her to do so because the painting was confirmed to be a circa 1879 original by famous French Impressionist Pierre-Auguste Renoir, valued between $75,000 and $100,000. I don't know about you, but I look at the picture of that painting and I wouldn't be able to pick it out of being worth anything. But someone obviously has to have an eye to be able to tell what it's worth. Let me ask this question for you and I in our lives. How do we measure what's worth investing? What's of real value? How do we measure if we're doing the things that we're really supposed to be doing? When it comes to being a follower of Jesus, we need to go to the very words and instructions of Jesus. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, we see what's called the Great Commission. They're the words of Jesus, the very last words Jesus spoke to his disciples. And they say this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our mission as Christ followers, our mission as a church comes down to this. We are all about being disciples and making disciples. Not people who do good things, being seen as people who follow the rules or are kind. Not people who get others to say a prayer to invite Jesus into their lives. We are disciples who are called to make disciples. That's what our lives are supposed to be all about. Now, this brings up an important question. What exactly is a disciple? This word that's used in Matthew 28 to make disciples, it means to be a disciple of one, to follow his precepts and instructions, to teach and to instruct. 
I find there's many different definitions of how people describe what a disciple is. One of the ones that I found most helpful was this. A disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. So trying to get this to be really practical, what does a disciple look like here at Eaglemont Church? Over the past six months, we as a leadership team have been discussing and working hard to try and define what we believe it practically looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Uh, me and my wife like watching the show, The Amazing Race, and oftentimes there's different challenges and stations they have to go to, and there's these little minute details that if people aren't really specific and focused on the task at hand, they often get trapped at these pit stops where they can't get past it because they don't actually get all the detail of what it means. Sometimes when we say the word disciple, it seems so broad and so kind of uh, elusive of to what it actually means that we don't know how to live it out. And so as a church, as a leadership, we really want to get really specific and practical of what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus here at Eaglemont Church. So we have narrowed this down to what we believe are eight key characteristics of a disciple. And over the next eight weeks, we are going to unpack each of these eight characteristics. In no particular order or priority, they are, one, growing intimacy with God. Two, developing Christ-like character. Three, building healthy relationships. Four, engaging with the Bible. Five, obeying God. Six, exercising faith. Seven, living generously. And eight, sharing Christ. Now, as a church, these eight key points will be the guiding force behind all that we do here. As a church, we are all about fulfilling the Great Commission. If you're wondering what we are about at Eaglemont Church, it's exactly what Jesus spoke about that Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. So we will use these eight characteristics moving forward to help guide all we do. If an event, a program, an exercise, anything is to be built up, it needs to have at least uh, the emphasis of building one of these characteristics, no matter how popular, no matter how, how successful, quote unquote, anything is, we need to be achieving these goals because we want to pour all our energy, our time, our resources into the things that Jesus says are most important. We are completely sold out on this. So if you are part of Eaglemont Church, whether that's in children's ministry or youth ministry, or you're engaged in a small group, or you're involved in serving ministry, whether that's you're uh, in, in a seniors group, this mission is the same across the board. And we want all of us to be deliberate and prayerful about how God is growing us in these ways. Now, one of the things we see clearly in the teachings of Jesus and throughout Scripture is that discipleship is not about a one-time decision. It's not about simply saying a prayer at a church service or attending once in a while, nor simply a point to be attained or arrived at. Not one of us this morning has arrived and attained when it comes to becoming like Jesus and fully reflecting him in these eight qualities. Discipleship is a lifelong journey of becoming, every day transforming more and more to reflect the nature of Jesus Christ. So we are all literally in this together. No matter where you are today, 
in church this morning, perhaps hearing about Jesus for the first time, or maybe you've been in church for 80 years and you've had a personal relationship with Jesus throughout that. No matter where you are, all of us are in the process of discipleship together. This is why when we talked about these eight characteristics, you'll notice that all of them have a verb in front of them, an action to them, because we are actively working to grow in them. So this brings us to this week's characteristic in our message for this morning. And you're already like, this is just starting the message? I know, but we're going to get there. So today we want to look at the characteristic of growing intimacy with God. Now, while the list I shared earlier, as I pointed out, of eight characteristics of a disciple are in no particular order, I would say this, if there was one characteristic I would place over all the others, it would be this one. And that's because the growth of all the other key characteristics of being a disciple in our lives will stem from this. They stem from intimacy with God. So let's look at this concept of growing intimacy with God. This word intimacy or intimate, it means to be marked by a warm friendship developing through long association, marked by close association, contact, or familiarity. Essentially, growing intimacy with God means a growing friendship or relationship with God. The core value of intimate relationship with God is woven throughout the story of the Bible. This redemptive relational story that we see throughout scripture. We go right back to the beginning. In the beginning of Genesis, God breathed life into mankind. And in the beginning of Genesis, we see that God created Eden, a paradise where God would walk with Adam and Eve through the garden. The very purpose of mankind's relationship, the purpose of your life and your very existence is to be in relationship and communion with God. Now, for those of you who've read the Bible before, you're aware that we didn't get far into Genesis before things started to fall apart by the entrance of sin, of us, mankind, choosing to go against the very principles, the things that God wanted for us. And in that, there became a division. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see the absolute devastation and destruction of sin in our world, the brokenness that it reaped. This brings us back to the redemptive narrative of the Bible. And throughout this whole story, we see God working to restore this broken relationship between mankind and himself. That he would once again have, and we would once again with him, have close intimate relationship with the Father. This was ultimately accomplished through the work of his son, Jesus. Ephesians 1, 3-5 says this, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. I'm struck by those last words, that it gave him great pleasure. There's, as a dad, I've learned a lot of things, and I think I understand a little more of the heart of Father God from being a dad myself. Every Christmas and every birthday, I sacrifice a lot of money and will buy toys for my son, oftentimes ones that I know are 
probably just going to end up in a junk pile in a year or two. And then you have to actually spend all the time of putting them together. It is painstaking. I believe it's great sacrifice. But the whole concept of being able to see the joy on his face when he opens it and plays with it, that actually brings me great pleasure. Why? Because of my love and my affection for him. God could have, at the very beginning of creation, he could have made us to be robots just to do whatever he wanted. For those of you who look around and go, look at this broken world, you explain it. How could a, a loving God allow for all this to happen? Well, it's because he is a loving God. And God's desire was for you to be in loving relationship with him. But for love to truly exist, there has to be free will. And God gave us that choice. Think about this. God knew that we would actually disobey him and he would go through all the heartbreak and pain of what we see through scripture of people going against him, disobeying him, dis disappointing him. He went through all that heartbreak because that's so, that's how much he desires to have loving relationship with us. This is what makes Christianity different than every other religion in the world. The God of the Bible is not some far out deity that we are somehow working to try to appease and earn salvation, earn eternity from. Christianity insists that we are saved not by what we do, but by what God in Christ has already done for us in history, through his incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Isaiah 64 and 6 says this, we are all infected with impure sin. By all, that means everyone. Everyone is infected with sin. And it says this, when we display our righteous deeds, our good acts, the things that we think will earn our way to heaven, they are nothing but filthy rags to God. This term filthy rags means rags of menstruation. They're dirty menstrual pads to God. God doesn't care about your works. Becoming a true disciple includes a lot of outward change. And we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come to the way we speak, act, and live. But it's not simply about behavior modification in our lives. Rather, those outward behavioral changes are simply the byproduct of real change that happens inside of us. And it happens by a living, life-transforming relationship with an all-powerful, all-loving God. In the New Testament, we see one big question that Jesus gives that we need to answer at the end of this life. If you have your Bibles, please open to Matthew chapter 7. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus gives really the clue to the big question that we are going to have to face at the end of this life. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? I mean, incredible things. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The big question that we need to be able to answer is intimated at the end of Jesus' response here. I never knew you. But God, I prophesied in your name. I, I cast out demons. God, look at all the amazing things I did for you, all the good works I've done. 
but they didn't know Jesus. Do you know him? And just as important, does he know you? Do you have a real relationship with God? When this life is all said and done, for all the accomplishments you maybe have achieved, all the things you have attained, all the good works and sacrifices you have made, none of that actually matters. Do you actually know him? Jesus says that's all that matters. There is no karma, no earning, according to Jesus. It's do you know him? Does he know you? For a follower of Jesus, if we want to see what it is to be a disciple, we need to look at our ultimate example. As I said earlier, a disciple is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. This means that the one we really should look to in order to help set an example is Jesus himself. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the Apostle Paul, who was an amazing man, performed miracles, shared Jesus with hundreds and thousands of people, did incredible things for the kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul said this. He said, don't follow me and emulate me, but he says, follow my example, not as I achieve and as I show you great things. This is in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Follow my example only as I follow the example of Christ. I don't know if you have people in your life that you look to and you go, that person's really spiritual. That person's someone I look up to that I emulate or, or I want to copy. I want to be like them. There's nothing wrong with having heroes in the faith, if you will. But they can't replace Jesus. Even Paul says, I can't be the person you emulate and you copy. Only do it as I emulate Christ. Christ is our ultimate example. Uh, sometimes I like watching shows about like white collar crimes, uh, the guys who commit like real intense forgeries and burglaries. I don't know why, I just find it interesting. Uh, on the screen, you should see a picture of $2 bills. Now, if you were to look at those bills, one of those bills is fake. Can you pick out which one is and which one is real? No matter how good the forgery is, you do not learn how to do a good forgery by studying a good forgery. Rather, you, you're trying to actually look like what it is, so you have to study the real thing. If we want to be like Christ, don't look at someone who's similar or someone who's trying to follow Christ. We need to look to Jesus himself, the original. Now, before I move on, because some of you need to know, it's the bill on the bottom, that's the fake one, and the one that's on top, that's the real. If you guessed, well done. John 5, 19 says this, as we look to Jesus, Jesus is our example when it comes to intimacy with God. Jesus is our example of what it means to be a disciple. He, his life is to set the standard for how we live. John 5, 19, so Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. Jesus, the son of God, can't do anything by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus, our example of how to live. John 8, 26, 
Jesus, for I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. John 14, 8 to 10, Philip said to them, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you do not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. John 10.30, the Father and I are one. Jesus was intimate and close with the Father. He relied every day on the Father speaking through him, on the Father empowering him and guiding him. He, he relied on the Father for direction. If Jesus relied so heavily on the Heavenly Father, wouldn't we also need to do so? Luke 5.16, we see a sentiment and, and an action of Jesus' life that's repeated throughout the Gospels. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. This is in Luke 5.16. When it says he withdrew to the wilderness, it doesn't mean he went to the jungle. It means he went to a secluded place by himself to be with his father, to speak and to spend time with him. If Jesus himself so greatly prioritized to be alone with God the Father, shouldn't we? See, it's only through that core relationship, that intimacy with God, that we can even actually know who we are ourselves. There is a core need in your soul to be known and to know your creator. See, who you are is rooted in your creator and who he created you to be. Your identity, your calling, your mission, it comes out of a personal relationship and knowledge of him. The Bible gives us a clear picture for the Christ follower of who we are, of who God says you are. I encourage you this week to look through the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. And here we see a lot about who God says you are. It says in those, in him or in Christ is used 11 times in the first three chapters of Ephesians and 30 times throughout that epistle. And we see in these chapters that you are chosen in him. You are adopted into the family of God. You are redeemed by his blood, forgiven according to his grace, called for a specific purpose. You have received an inheritance and you are sealed as a family member. You are loved and wanted and of great value to God. Living a life out of this identity leads to a life of richness with love, meaning, purpose, and fulfillment. Yet for many in our world and even in the church today, while they maybe have been aware even of some of these statements, they don't live their life out of this identity. Many struggle with an unhealth in their very soul that finds its roots in false identities from other voices. We need to be connected to our creator in intimate relationship to find our purpose, our calling, our identity, and meaning through that. I want to look at one more passage together this morning. And again, if you have your Bibles, we're in the book of John. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. Jesus tells an illustration of what it is to live life in connection with Jesus, with the Father, through Christ. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 9. 
there's a word that often here is translated either abide or remain, and it means to continue to be kept, to be held continually, do not depart from. So Jesus says this, he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. And we know from later, one of the, ser- one of the messages in the series is going to be talking about the fruit of the spirit. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be given even more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. I'd like us to focus on these next couple verses. So Jesus says this, Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Your life cannot create things on its own. This is where it's backwards. If you're just trying to do good works, you're trying to achieve heaven, you're trying to achieve a good standing with God simply by doing things on your own, you can't do that. Just like a branch doesn't have life on its own, but life needs to come from the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is my to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit fruit. Not you are successful or rich or look prestigious, but that the fruit of the Spirit that we're going to be talking about in a couple weeks is evident in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience. Those things are going to be growing in your life, showing yourselves to be my disciple. And the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. Church, I really want to encourage you this week. These verses, John 15, 1 to 9. Some of you need to every day read this this week. Maybe in your 3 by 5 challenge time to read through this passage and to spend some time just asking God, what would you want me to learn? What do you want to speak to me through these words of Jesus? We need to be careful, church, not to fall for the trap of religion. That is all a message of attaining 